passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. of you have ever been involved in a leadership training course? Anybody done something like that? I don't know. You've been involved in them. Yeah. What do they teach you in those things? Like the art of delegation, uh, time management, key result areas, all kinds of those leadership training ideas. I don't know if you realize it, but we're, we've been studying our way through 1 Samuel. We're actually in a section of this book that is telling us about God's leadership training course. He's training his king, King David. Maybe you've noticed it. Once David was first anointed king secretly in 1 Samuel 16, all the way until he officially assumes the kingship in the beginning of 2 Samuel, this whole period in between, he's going through all kinds of difficulties. And life is not easy for him, but this is actually God's leadership training course for David as God prepares David to be his king, a different kind of king. That's why David is learning how to handle opposition. He's learning how to rely on God and not on himself in the midst of those times of oppositions. And these lessons are pretty important for him. It'll make him a different kind of king. Last week in 1 Samuel 24, we saw that he handled that chapter, which was another section of his leadership training course from God. He handled it well. You remember he had King Saul who happened to go potty in the same cave where he and his men were hiding. A lot of opportunity and desire for him to just take Saul out finally. But he realized, he knew that he would not touch the Lord's anointed. That's not what God wanted him to become king by murdering his predecessor, but by trusting God to take care of his predecessor. And he would respect the Lord's anointed. And he handled that leadership test well. Today we come to 1 Samuel chapter 25 and he has another leadership training test from God, but quite honestly, he doesn't handle this one well. He handles this one rather poorly. Why he succeeds in chapter 24, he completely fails in chapter 25. And if it was not for God, sending a a sister in Christ, so to speak, somebody to talk to him and try and give him biblical counsel and talk him down from his anger and his rage and his poor choices, he would have failed miserably. Thank goodness that God sent somebody in his life to talk him down from making a really dumb choice. And folks, there's something we can learn for that. God doesn't just talk David down from his anger and his rage and making bad choices here in 1 Samuel 25 by using others who know God. But he does the same thing here among us. This is one of the reasons it's so important for us to be in community. It's so important for us to be in the church. You realize God's intent is not for any of us to be Lone Ranger Christians. Because when we're a Lone Ranger Christian and we find ourselves angry and we're left to our own devices, we make a lot more sinful choices, a lot more poor choices. When we're angry and we're, we're alone and we're discouraged, and we don't have brothers and sisters in Christ around us, we tend to make much more sinful choices, not godly choices. But thank goodness that God has put us among a band of brothers. He's put us in community in the church because God uses our church family to help us when we're angry, to talk us down, and to lift us up when we're discouraged. And we'll see that very clearly in this chapter. Now, if you're somebody who's new, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors, and we are working our way through 1 Samuel, and we're in 1 Samuel chapter 25 today. Let me begin and take your outlines out. We're going to give you a little bit of background for what's going on here. Last week was a very uh, critical moment in our story. As you remember, since David was secretly anointed king, when 
Um, he began to just sort of grow in prominence after the story of David and Goliath when he slew Goliath. And people were excited for him. People loved him. But there's one person that just despised him terribly. That was King Saul. Remember that? King Saul has done everything he can to keep David from becoming king. We've seen him. Saul's made over a dozen attempts trying to kill David. God foils each one of those. But last week, finally things changed. A pivot happened in the story. When David spared Saul's life in the cave, in, in the En Gedi, and when David treated Saul respectfully, it moved King Saul to tears. Literally, tears in front of his 3,000 soldiers, tears in front of David's men. And King Saul did something that nobody expected, which is he publicly acknowledged for the first time that David deserved to be king and David finally will be king. We saw this at the very end last week where Saul said this, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Now it seems once that has finally publicly been declared, there's a change, a change in the directions of the story. One of the things we've been following is Samuel. Remember Samuel the prophet who anointed David king secretly? He's been in the background for a while. Once Saul finally acknowledges David is king, it seems like Samuel says, okay, my work is done. It's time to go home to be with the Lord. And that's what we find as we start this next chamber, chapter 25. Samuel died. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Now it says that all Israel mourned for Samuel. Uh, does that mean that King Saul went to the funeral? My, yeah, I doubt it too. I, I doubt it. They, they were pretty well estranged. I don't know, but just doubt it. Do you think that David went to the funeral? Uh, I doubt it. And, and all, the reason I said it is because in the last chapter, David and Saul had agreed to part ways. And they had agreed to part ways peacefully, but they certainly weren't on good friendship relationship. And Saul, or David seems to have tried to stay away from Saul. So he might not have made uh, that funeral. And it says that they ended up burying um, Samuel in his house. Now, what does that mean? They threw him under the rug? Uh, no, quite honestly, it means they probably buried him in the backyard, probably some kind of family property, and that's where they put him. Now it reads this. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Where is Paran? Paran is deep in the south. It's all the way down where um, Moses and the wilderness wanderings took place. So let me just show you a little idea of a map here. This is what's been going on in the En Gedi. This is what we looked at last week where David was hiding in the cave. Let me show you where Paran is. It's all the way down there. Now you're going to say, oh, why does David go there? I have no idea. Maybe some of you do, but I don't know. But it tells us he went there, so I thought I'd at least show you where he went. But we know that he seems to have returned from there, gone back to his men. Maybe this was just a time for him to process the death of Samuel, to sort of get away and think things through. He returns to his men in the region of the En Gedi, and he goes back to facing problems. And one of the first problems he faced is what I call logistics. We've seen at this point, he has a militia of around 600 men that are following him. That is a lot of mouths to feed. You guys ever do our potluck down there? You know how hard that is to put together? Imagine doing that for all your meals and then tripling it. By the way, it could be even more than triple. That would be assuming that the 600 men had none of them that were married and none of them that had children. My guess is some of them were probably married and some of them had children. So we could be talking a group of 1,000 people, maybe up to 1,500 people or more. That is a lot of food. Now, where does the logistics and supplies for this militia come from? It has to come from the surrounding population. 
And we find that he doesn't get those supplies, it seems like, in the En Gedi. He actually moves a little bit. He moves to the area of Ma the wilderness of Maon, to the town of Carmel, and there's a rich man there. We'll show you where this picks up. It's, this section is called Nabal's Folly. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So let's look at where Maon and Carmel are. I'll put your map up there. You can see it's actually not too far uh, from uh, the wilderness of the Engedi, or the Engedi area, so he doesn't have to travel far. Now, typically, people like him, who had a militia of 600 men, what they would do is they would just ransack the local population, sort of like the Mexican mafia, uh, the Mexican cartel. You know, you just start stealing stuff from people. But that is not what David and his men did. They actually had, and we'll see much more of this beginning to hear, very good behavior. They actually made every effort to live at peace where they were with the peace people. And later on, we're going to see that these David and his men were good members of the community. In short, we're going to see David and his men were not using their force to overwhelm people, but they were actually being good neighbors to people. If you're looking for the fill in the blank, that's the first one. David was a good neighbor. He actually did well for this community. Instead of exploiting people, we're going to see in a moment how he went out of his way to protect people. And what really struck me is, isn't it this the same way we as Christians are to interact with our communities? Aren't we to be people that are good neighbors? Aren't we going to be people to go out of our ways not to exploit those around us, but to protect, help, and serve those around us? Thank you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says this, So then, as you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're going to see in a little bit that David and his men, what they began to do is provide protection for Nabal. Protection for his shepherds, protection for his sheep. And this was important. In this day, there was no such thing as a local police force around. If you were a shepherd and you had sheep in the wilderness, you expected that people would attack you, expected that people would take your sheep. When you're doing your profit and loss column, you just figured in that percentage of loss for uh, thieves and scoundrels that would just steal your stuff because you had no way to protect it. But David and his men, joining to do good to their community where they lived, they protected people. They protected the sheep. And they made sure there was no loss that Nabal experienced. Um, I thought, this is also not just the way David should live, the way David did live, but isn't this also the way we want to live? Yeah. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but we have seven core values as a church, and this is one of our core values. I'm going to put that up here. Outreach, we believe in reaching our community by serving our community, by doing good for our community. That's how we want to reach the community around us. In fact, our goal as a church is if God would ever take crosswinds off this corner and say we were not here. We want our community to be really sad that we're gone because the community, even the non-Christians in the community, would miss all the good works that Crosswinds has done for their neighbors. That's what our goal is. That's how we want to live. Just like David is living with his men, doing good works in the community where he lives. Now, we're also introduced, not just to David and this new place where he's living, doing some good works. We're introduced to a man named Nabal, which is the wealthy man who owns a lot of these sheep. Interestingly, his name in Hebrew means the fool, and his conduct actually fits his name. The Bible describes him here as harsh and unloving and rude. You picture, this is the kind of guy, he scratches wherever it itches, even if he's in public. You know what I'm talking about? 
He's the kind of guy that when he's drinking his beer, he's proud of the fact that he can burp the entire alphabet. You know, just that harsh, rude, sort of really crude guy out there. That's what he's like. Now, his wife is the exact opposite of him. It says that his wife is discerning and extremely beautiful. Uh, the word discerning here doesn't mean that she's just intellectually smart. It means particularly she's relationally and morally smart. She has a good way with people and can understand friction that happens between people. Nabel's the exact opposite. He just creates friction with people because of his harsh and unloving way of doing things. And by the way, you might sit there and say, well, how did these guys ever get together? Is this a case of opposites attracting? Probably not. <laughs> it's called arranged marriages. So Abigail is one of these ladies who's stuck in a very difficult relationship, and she's doing the best she can to make it through. And we read this. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Sheep shearing season was a little bit like harvest season. It's a time of abundance. It's a time when Nabal is about to get much richer, and he's already an extremely wealthy guy. The difference is that in his lost column where he expected to have all these lost sheep, and so he would have uh, less wealth, there wasn't that loss because David and his men had protected his sheep. They had protected the community. They had been like a police force in the area. Uh, keeping the, we call it, the cartel members away. So in this season, if you understand it, it's a time where you gave your year-end bonuses to people. It's a time a little bit like Thanksgiving and Christmas all rolled together, where you went and you did good to other people. You shared your blessings with other people. And so David comes along and he says, hey, could you share a little bit with me? It says this, so David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, Go to Car up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you, Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Just please give us sort of whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So this is the festival time. Everybody's feasting. David only sends 10 young men to bring back some food. This is not a lot of people. They cannot carry much back. Remember, he has a militia of 600 men to feed. If you throw wives, possibly, and children there, maybe it's 1,000, maybe 1,200 mouths to feed. He's just 10 men. Just bring back what they can carry. And notice he says there, I'm not asking you to go out of your way to prepare food. I'm just asking you to share what is the extra food. Just can we have the leftovers? In addition, by the way, just so you know, we went out of our way to help you. We went out of our way to protect you, to help you during this season. Now, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? I don't know if you realize this, but do you, do you hear the disdaining words in Nabal's voice? Instead of finding grace from Nabal, he gets an insult from Nabal. Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? By the way, Nabal knows exactly who he is. Everybody knows who David is since David killed Goliath. Everybody knows that David is the one in charge of Saul's own bodyguards. 
Everybody knows that David and his small militia had just recently beat the Philistine army at the city of Keilah. Everybody knows that Saul had publicly acknowledged just recently that David is the rightful coming king. Everybody knows this. But Nabal decides to just shaft him, just decides to completely insult him. In addition, he says this, like, all you are is a runaway slave rebelling against your master. Now, we know David's attitude. He's not been a runaway slave rebelling against Saul. Even though he's been running from Saul, hasn't he been completely loyal and faithful to Saul the whole time? We've seen this earlier when Ahimelech said, there is nobody more faithful to Saul than David. So Nabal is just, just slamming his reputation all over the place. In addition, you can see Nabal's greed. Shall I take my meat and my water that I have slaughtered, or sacrificed for my servants and give it to you guys? He's all about himself. In a season of giving, in a season of trying to be gracious to other people, all Nabal can think about is himself and not extend any kindness to David whatsoever. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. Now, if you were David and you heard Nabal's answer, how do you think you would feel? You would be lit. After all the serving in that community, all the doing good in that community, helping people, protecting people, and all you ask is for a little bit of the leftovers from a feast. And this guy just slams you. Like you said, Tom, you would be hot. Now in the last chapter, when David had a tough situation, he handled it well. Here's another tough situation. Let's see if he handles it well or not. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained in the baggage. Guys, a lot of people are going to die. There's going to be a lot of body bags out there. Let's go and start cutting people up. He is angry. He's not handling this well. He's going to kill a bunch of people because they merely, one person insulted him. Now I want to stop here. We've been working our way through the text and I want to give some applications here. So there's a lot of good ones in this. You know, it was really easy for David to fall into a sinful response on this one because he's not prepared for it. He was surprised by it. Uh, this is me reading between the lines, so go gracious on this one. But in the last chapter, when David had the chance to kill Saul, I personally think he had rehearsed that situation and thought about that situation in his mind before. That one day, he may actually get the chance to take Saul on and eliminate his life. And as he thought about it, and as he prayed about it, I think he had he knew what the right response was. So he had rehearsed it in his mind. This is different. David was not expecting this insult. He was not expecting this response. So he had not prepared for it in his mind. So when he was insulted in a really nasty way, he responded in like a knee-jerk reaction response. And oftentimes, folks, isn't that when we make our sinful responses? Not when we've had a chance to think about them. Not when we've had a chance to prepare for them. When we have an, somebody insults us and we have a knee-jerk reaction right back at them. This is what David did. So here's an application. You know, when we have a chance to prepare for a response, we think about it. And I don't know how it works for you guys, but I'm up in the shower in the morning. I'm thinking about things in the shower and washing my hair, going through that, praying to God about how to respond to a tough situation. And I'm usually better prepared but I'm not prepared for the surprises. So this is what I try to do. I say to myself, it's not a matter of if I will be hurt today or if somebody will say something that's difficult to handle. It's only a matter of when. 
Isn't that true? It may be today. It may be tomorrow. It's going to come. So when I'm in the shower, I'm sitting there praying, God, I don't know what's going to happen, how I'm going to get surprised, who's going to say a hurtful thing to me. I don't know where it's coming, but help me now. Help me to respond right. And help me to catch myself when I want to have that knee-jerk response with that quick-witted answer when I know I have to keep my mouth shut. So that's how I've tried to help prepare for those things. And hopefully that may be helpful for you as you have to wrestle with preparing for those surprise difficult times. If you're following along, that's the first bullet point. It's easy to fall into sin when we are not prepared for it. Each day we need to prepare for temptation we don't know are coming, not just the ones we do know are coming. Another observation. Some of our greatest temptations will come on the heels of spiritual success. David has just handled the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave of En Gedi, and he handled it well. And he, I think he knows he handled it well. And he, Saul was crying in front of him. God, thank you for helping me handle it well. And he's walking like this. And when we think we're doing really well, that's when Satan loves to go, okay, now his guard is down, attack again. Isn't that what happens? And we fall so quickly. This is what's happening here. And folks, it can happen to us. So whenever we do something right for God, we, and we don't fail a temptation, but we handle the temptation well, be prepared because Satan will almost always attack again on the heels of our success, hoping our guard is down. And that's what he did here. Some of our temptations, uh, excuse me, next one. Everything. Be careful about expecting respect. The more we expect respect, the more likely it is that we will have a sinful response to those who hurt us. I think David had come at this point to expect respect from people. He knows he's the anointed king. He's had the whole David and Goliath situation. Everybody looks up to him. Now he has 600 men gathering around him. Saul was just crying in front of him, acknowledging him as king. I think it's a little bit of like, yeah, I'm the coming king. It's happening now. It's happening now. And then he gets insulted. You know who you're insulting? You know who you're calling a nobody? Just a, re a mere servant rebelling against his master? And that's how he responds poorly. If we expect respect when we don't receive it, we will often respond with anger and hatred. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is. Well, here's the answer. Don't expect respect. Be thankful if you get respect, but don't expect respect and demand respect and say, I deserve respect. You know who deserved the most respect of all? Jesus Christ. Was Jesus given respect? He was whipped. He was spit on. He was abused. He was crucified. You don't see him responding, oh, how dare you do that? You know who I am? I created you. No, he responds gently. In fact, Peter says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, that means insulted, he did not revile, that is insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus deserved respect. He didn't get respect, but he trusted himself to God and didn't respond in a poor way. So the situation is, David is what I call, this is what I call the dangerous Dave situation. He is lit. He's angry. He's on the war path. People are going to die because you've disrespected me. What happens next? We have Abigail's wisdom. But one of the young men told Abigail, that's Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when they were in the fields. 
as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both night and day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. For he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. I can't even tell him that what he's done is a terrible insult. I'm going to talk to you, his wife, because you're the one that seems to have the good relational skills in the family at this point. Well, Nabal has a death wish. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep that were already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. This is what you call the Betty Cracker moment where she's going to prepare some food and, and give it to these guys. It sounds like a feast, but if you really think about it, it's not a feast. It's actually the leftovers from their feast because the sheep had what? Already been prepared. These were the leftovers that David and his men were asking for. And that's all that she is providing because that's all she could at this moment. Now, what happens next? It's not really clear in the English text, but I'll tell you that I looked at a number of Hebrew scholars. They say this seems to be what's happening. As Abigail has sent this food ahead, she's on her way. She's going to try and intercept David and his men, and they're going to sort of meet each other on the path. But apparently by the way the paths cross, Abigail can hear David talking before she actually sees David and is able to face David. And the situation is far worse than she ever realized. And as she rode on the donkey and they came under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. And now David, notice, had said, this has already been said, she heard this, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he's returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Think he's lit? Nabal is the one who offended him. He plans to kill Nabal and every single man in this entire rich man's household, which, by the way, folks, is a lot of people. Now, wise Abigail has a severe problem on her hand. She has to do something to talk David off the ledge because she, he's about ready to make some really bad choices and really fail this leadership test. Now what happens next is we're going to look at Abigail's response to David. And I'm going to pick it apart as we go through it because there is a ton of wisdom here on how we as Christians can help other believers when they're in these tough times. How do we talk to somebody when they're really angry? How do we talk to somebody when they're going to make a foolish choice? and an unwise choice. How do we approach them in such a way that we can turn them back onto the path of following God when their anger is getting the best of them? She is a textbook example of how to do this. Let's look. The first thing we see is this, is she takes a position of humility and shows respect. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She takes a position of humility. When there's somebody around you, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your, I don't know who it is, but they're angry, they're upset, they're mad. The best way to approach them is humbly, not conflictually. Because if you start by raising your voice at an angry person, 
If you start by yelling at an angry person and you say, you always do this and you never do that, how well does it go? You might as well just hear that flushing sound, you know? It's over with. But Abigail, she knows David is lit. She bows before him and is very, very humble to him. Now, maybe in your marriage, you find times of conflict. Maybe your spouse is starting to raise their voice and get angry and upset. You bring the temperature down with your voice. You do not bring the temperature up. You get humble. You go low when they go high. You're very gentle towards them. The next thing we see is this. You begin the conversation by confessing my own sin, not pointing out the other person's sin. That's what she does. And she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. It's my fault. Please let your servant speak in your ears. Hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But if I, your servant, did, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. If I had seen your young men, I guarantee you it would have been different. Nabal's not in charge of the kitchen. I am. So I just want to take all the guilt. I want to take the fault. It's, it's really my issue here. And I think this is interesting because when you have a conflict between people, it's never 100% one way, is it? There's always guilt on both sides. And the best way to sort of ratchet those situations down is number one, be humble. And then number two, begin by saying, hey, I want to confess what I did wrong. I want to confess my guilt. I want to own those things. Because at least you're starting the confession process, aren't you? At least you're starting the healing process. You can't guarantee that the other person will confess their guilt, but you can guarantee that you can confess your guilt. And it disarms the person. It try to helps bring the relationship into a healthy situation, especially in a marriage. It always goes two ways, doesn't it? When you're fighting with your spouse, you be the one to go humble and you be the one to confess your guilt to bring the anger down. Secondly, or thirdly, offer to make restitution for what I've done wrong. She says this, Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. She's humble. She confesses guilt. And she says, oh, by the way, here's what I want to give you. Here's the present that you were asking for. So the idea is when we sin, sin oftentimes takes something from someone. And as part of that restoration process, you give back what you've taken. Uh, think of it this way in a marriage. Say there's a fight in a marriage. And the fight is, you know, we don't get any time together. We don't have much of a relationship together. So you have to be humble. And you have to confess your guilt and say, yes, I've been too busy. I've been too busy at work. I've been gone too much. You're right. You're right. I want to own that. But then you say, how can I restore that? So I'd like you to know, can we go on a family vacation? Let's plan it. Or... <laughs> We can't go on a family vacation, but can we like set aside Tuesday as a date night just for the two of us? Because I want to restore to you the time I have taken away from you. You see how this works? Abigail's humble. She's confessing her guilt, and she's trying to restore what has been taken away. Um, the next one. Remember that God works to protect us from our sinful choices, and he often does that through other believers. This one's a little bit more complicated. She says, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek and do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Notice it's a past tense. Hasn't God restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand in the past? Folks, isn't it true that sometimes in the past we've been really angry, 
We've said some really bad things. We've made some really bad choices. But God, in his grace, has kept us from carrying out those rash decisions. Maybe he's used other people in our life to talk some sense into us. And aren't we thankful he did that? How many of us would still be married if we uh, wasn't for God's grace? Yeah, I know, because we may be in a really angry situation. We say, I'm going to do, and then over time, you think about it. God's word convicts you on it. Somebody talks to you, and you back off on that. And the point is, she says, you know, God has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving by your own hand in the past, because this is a past tense. Maybe he's trying to do the same thing right now. We've never regretted restraining ourselves from rash decisions in the past. Maybe we should be thankful for restraining ourselves from rash decisions in the present. The next thing is this. To remember that God's people are to be known for their forgiveness, not for their evil. She says, please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. As God's man and as God's people, our reputation should be one of forgiving people, not getting even with people. We should not have a reputation for evil choices. Now, Abigail knows David will be God's chosen king. She believes God will make him the next king. David doesn't need revenge on Nabal. God will get him to the kingship either way. God will get him to the kingship without Nabal taking any of that revenge. Nabal's insult ultimately doesn't matter. True? It's just David's pride that is wounded. And it's the same for us. Folks, do you realize this? God will get you where he wants you in spite of whatever sin has been done to us. So we don't need to get revenge for us. Right? Doesn't matter how people sin against you, God will get you exactly where he wants you. So leave revenge in God's hands, not in our hands. David, you don't need to get revenge. God will take care of it. The next thing she points out is this. Remember that God promises to protect his people. We don't need to take revenge to protect ourselves. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies, what shall he do? He shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. David, you don't need to get revenge. God has promised to protect you. He's going to throw your enemies away from you like a rock coming out of a sling, which, by the way, should really connect with David, especially after the Goliath incident. And isn't there some truth to this for us as well? God loves us. God cares for us. He sent his own son to die for us. There is nothing that's going to happen for us that is not in God's will and God's good plan for us. We can rest assured in that. So why do we need to get revenge on those people who insult us? Why do we need to get even with those people who hurt us? We don't. God's got it all under control. Our job is to show forgiveness. Our job is to show mercy. Leave revenge and getting even in God's hands. It's not to go in our hands. Now, she continues and says this. Those who carry out revenge, by the way, will always live with regrets. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, 
then remember your servant. You know, when you focus on getting even, you focus on getting revenge, you always look back and say, I shouldn't have done that. I should have left it in God's hand and let God take care of it. Now, that brings us to this next section. What does God say about revenge? Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time shall their, <laughs> for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. That's Old Testament. But it says it again in the New Testament. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Our job, remember, is to show mercy, forgiveness, and grace like Jesus has shown to us. God's job is to take care of justice. It's not ours. We don't take care of revenge. Now, I'll just throw this in. Last week, somebody said to me, well, what about, you know, does this mean we should let all the criminals out of jail? Uh, no. The Bible is very clear that the government uh, has a role that God has ordained to protect us and to carry out justice. We can see this in Romans 13. Talks, speaking about the government, for he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. But this is talking about personal issues. Us between other people. Not saying the government doesn't have a role to play. Now, let's see what happens next. David's response. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me, to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation by my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. He says, boy, am I thankful God sent you, <laughs> and you had the courage to talk to me. I needed this. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go and go up in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice. I've granted your petition. Now, there's a little thing in the end here. I call Nabal's loss and David's gain. And Abigail came to Nabal. And before he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king, because Nabal's a party animal, we know that, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. For she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. He had a stroke. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. He didn't die of a stroke. God struck Nabal. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. And notice this, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. David's like, wow, God does take care of justice. I didn't need to do this. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail and to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaiden is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. What goes on here? David's like, I'm not interested in her because she's a wealthy widow. I'm interested in her because that is the kind of woman I need in my life. Someone who, yeah, life, that kind of wife. Someone who's tactful, humble, courageous, godly, and will speak the truth to him to get him off the edge of sin when he's walking on the precipice of it. 
Folks, this is the kind of woman, that, single guys, this is the kind of woman you want to look for. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. By the way, the Bible is not saying a, a polygamy is a good thing, but it happens. Um, and then Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. That's the rest of his, um, what happened to his other wife. Now, applications, as I end here, watching my time. Four quickly ones. Like David, when people hurt us, it's easy to want to carry out revenge. That can be physical injury, legal revenge, social snubbing, gossip, or libel on social media. But as God's people, we leave revenge in God's hands. In time, God will carry out justice. Our job is to show forgiveness, love, and mercy, just like God has shown forgiveness, love, and mercy to us. And folks, this includes our enemies. Secondly, we saw this. It's on the heels of spiritual success. We're most vulnerable to spiritual failure. Number three, God doesn't want Lone Ranger Christians. We need the church. God uses other Christians to help us see our sins and wisely counsel us away from sin, just like he used Abigail to counsel David. Lastly is this question. Am I like Nabal, who was too foolish and proud to listen to gentle correction? Or am I like David, who was willing to receive gentle correction from a brother or sister in the faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, long chapter today. Uh, but thank you, Heavenly Father, for this chapter. Thank you not just for your word, but thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have given us in the church. May we be men and women who value those relationships, who cultivate those relationships as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help encourage us when we're down and help us talk, talk calmness to us when we're angry. We ask this in Christ's name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.